0: All right, here we go. It's the dream. Anyone who's ever put one arm through a guitar strap, slung it over their shoulder, and plugged that quarter-inch cable into an amp, and has looked into the mirror and said, Hello,
1: Cleveland! <laughs> Hello,
2: Cleveland! Hello, Cleveland! Rock and roll! Or whatever, say <laughs>
0: The dream of being up on stage and playing to a packed house. And if you're lucky enough to make a career out of it, which stage, which venue is the moment when you say, this is it. This is the coolest venue. Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And
3: I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions
0: that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today... With the help of some smart people,
3: we're going to come up with the answer.
0: Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's
3: question is, what is the greatest music venue? That's the
0: age-old question. You and I have both toured extensively, and we've played with different bands, different genres. In this conversation, we're talking about the coolest venue i mean it's not necessarily the biggest no doesn't not necessarily but i'm sure
3: woodstock was pretty crazy right to play a big venue like that but no yeah we're talking about like it maybe the greatest venue is a 200 person club because you can connect on such a deep level with literally everyone in the crowd
0: right that's the thing it could be madison square sure. garden for you sure or it could be 150 seat jazz room right and so what we're going to do today is talk to some people who have played these
3: rooms and get their experience and find out from the people that have played these
0: rooms what's the best. Let's start with our friend Russ Lawton. Okay. So we've talked to Russ a number of times. I remember we talked to him during the Beatles episode yep. about what made Ringo such a great drummer. Yep. Russ Lawton is a, is a musician you've played a lot of music with yeah I've been a band with Russ for 15 years Russ is maybe best known as the drummer in the Trey Anastasio band he also plays in a band with Ray Paskowski called Solomon. yep He's played some of the great venues in the world. He's played the great venues
3: for sure. I can't wait to talk to him. I know. Let's get it. Hey. What's up, Russ? It's Clint and Rich from the age-old question. Hi, guys. What's going on? Talking today about venues and what is the best venue. And there's no better person to talk to than you because you have made such a career in music and you've been doing it since you were like... 15, 16 years old, and you've played every size venue. And so right off the bat, Russ, what is your favorite venue to play? Uh, it's Red Rocks. <laughs> of course
2: I it mean, is. You know, I mean, yeah, it's pretty obvious, but it's like when you go there, I was just talking to for Hartsburg. We, we just played there uh, back in the spring, and then the new bass player, Desron had never been there. So for him to see what we... Saw back in two thousand one, his eyes—you know—your eyes popping out of your head, like this is incredible,
4: incredible. Man. Yeah. And,
2: and what's what's crazy too is like you think it's like some new place, but the Beatles played there. Yeah. And you go back and you're like, oh, is that old. I mean, it's, you know, it's been around. I, you know, you think it's a contemporary place or something that they constructed. This. It's pretty incredible.
0: Russ, describe Red Rocks for anyone who hasn't been there. What is the venue like?
2: Well, you know, from the stage you see those two amazing the rocks on each side and then it's a, like a natural amphitheater and you got the seats in between those two rocks and, and the stage and it's just almost prehistoric looking or something. Like right behind you from the stage, if you look back, you can just see all these amazing rocks and it's, it's, it's
3: pretty cool. The thing is, from the crowd, the lights that end up bouncing off those rocks those towering rock structures it creates yes. this like little it's almost like an indoor venue is how it feels almost even though you're outside because it's so enclosed in those rocks it's amazing yeah it,
2: it, it's pretty incredible it's definitely yeah
0: you've also obviously played places like the beacon theater if you were to rattle off a couple of your favorite venues yeah what are some other highlights in your touring career well,
2: obviously, the, another big moment—be Radio, Radio City. First yeah. time I played there was really, and the beacons really cool too. Those those beacon jams we did was you know, there's nobody there, but it was unbelievable, and it sounded so good. But I, I was thinking about this too, and for me, coming from uh, Boston area for years and years, the first time I played the Orpheum Theater was pretty special. Yeah, because because you go right over the river to Cambridge I used to play TT the Bears like all the time in this little venue with you know the 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 duct tape and the PA together and stuff <laughs> I played TT
1: the Bears oh yeah many times
2: <laughs> yeah yeah you know what I mean it's like and i they were really good to us there and we had it we do well there but you know but it was to play of the orpheum was definitely like yeah. You know, i've seen acts there when i was you know, growing up and stuff so it was it's pretty special yeah. you know like definitely but Little of places, too, I mean, yeah, I, I'm trying to think at the top of my head, you know, there's definitely, I just played this, we just played this new room in uh Fort Smith, New Hampshire, called uh, Jimmy's, Jimmy's, is like a jazz and blues club, and wow, they really, they put a lot of money into it, and it's like a, it's like a, it's like a New York City, like, jazz club or something, cool. they, it's an old YMCA, and they dump so much money into it, it's like, and they treated you really well, I mean, oh, my God, it's like, they
3: really took care of you it was that's, really special yeah, that's the other thing is like there's yep. something about the the hospitality that goes along with the venue, and you really look forward to playing certain venues because of the people that work there as much as the room itself, so
2: we do like you know we do the Wednesday thing once a month down South Mountain in Bristol. It's like you walk out of there like, well, that was good, you yeah. know it's like you're getting the feedback from the people, you right. feel inspired
0: as drummer, you also have maybe the best seat in the house to look at a venue. You're looking out at the band in front of you and then the audience in front of you. So you've had some incredible views or vantage points in these venues.
2: Well, well that's what we talk about. The first Bonnaroo had no idea. We had played another festival. We were on the road a lot that summer. And we played a festival. It was like, a, you know, like, well, a decent attendant. I remember I jumped up on stage. I couldn't even, all I saw was people. I couldn't even see the horizon of... <laughs> you know, whatever. And I was like,
3: what the heck is it? <laughs> 90, 95,000 people or yeah, something like that? Some, yeah, and it was just like, and I remember like,
2: one of Trey's trace managers, like, I can't believe what you're going to go up there and do right now because you just, you're just going for it. And then I remember we did the set, and like, bah, bah. it's like, okay, we'll be right back. I'm like, we're coming back? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just because it was like you put it all, and we thought we were doing the, the typical 90-minute, like, you know, it's concert set or whatever but it was fine it's, you know that's wow. def- why I I run up and down the stairs every day <laughs> to keep me shape, try to but <clears throat> that was pretty incredible that was definitely uh, pretty
3: mind blowing now there's definitely. one I got I got one more story that I want to tell so Russ is playing the Bell Center in Montreal opening oh, yeah. up for Eric <laughs> Clapton with who are you playing with? Uh, Robert Randolph Robert Randolph and so I, lucky enough, got to be his chauffeur for the night. So I got backstage passes, went up there. And I was so nervous for you before you went out on stage. (laughs) Because A, you didn't know any of the songs. You'd never rehearsed with them. And B, it was a sold-out 19,000-seat arena. And I was freaking out. But my favorite part of the story is the next night, literally the next night, you and I played...
0: Okay, this is where I tell you that in the middle of our conversation with Russ Lawton, the computer stopped recording. I say the computer like it's a thing and it chose to stop recording, but it did choose to stop recording. And we didn't know, or I should say I didn't realize that it stopped recording until after we had finished having a really long, fun conversation with Russ And then we called someone else, Pete Francis of Dispatch, to talk to him about his favorite music venues. And that was a great conversation. All the while, did not realize that the computer had decided to be a jerk and stop recording. I'm going to go ahead and run Rich and Clint are Boneheads.
3: Rich and Clint are Boneheads.
0: I want to finish that story that Clint was just about to tell where he was Russ's chauffeur while he was playing for 19,000 people at the Bell Center in Montreal, opening for Eric Clapton. And the very next night... The next night, literally the next night, you and I (laughs) play... The very next night, he and Clint are playing in the Two Brothers Tavern in Middlebury, Vermont, for 10 people. That's one of the things we love about great musicians. They just want to play. And they can find joy in playing for 19,000 people or 10 people. Okay, as I mentioned, we also had a conversation with Pete Francis about the incredible venues he's played during his touring career. We've talked to Pete before on this podcast. Pete was a founding member of the band Dispatch. And some of you listening will say, oh yeah, Dispatch. And some of you may say, I've never heard of them. Well, Dispatch is arguably the most successful independent band of all time. They headlined Madison Square Garden, sold it out multiple times, played just about every great venue. Here's my conversation with Pete. Yo! How are you? I'm doing good, man. Thank you for being back on the age-old question. The topic for this week is the greatest music venues. And I want to talk to you in part because I was reading Rolling Stone magazine lists of the greatest venues, top 10 greatest venues. And it's incredible to go through and you're like, Pete's played here, Pete's played there. So in your touring career, what is a highlight or a couple highlights?
4: I have to say that First Avenue in Minneapolis and then First Avenue has a little smaller club next door called seventh street entry and i love that because you're playing that and maybe that was 250 cap i think i remember minneapolis being like a snowy night and see
0: i love that you start there because you've also sold out mass and square garden and you've played radio city Music Hall. you've played some of the world's greatest music venues But for you, and this is part of the conversation here, right? Like it doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest venue. It's like what has most meaning for you as a performer or as an audience member. And I love that idea that there's a certain vibe of a room. There's certain size audience that you feel you're able to connect with the audience in a way maybe you can't when you're playing
4: in front of 20,000 people at Madison Square Garden. I guess I compare the 20,000 people to being like a gladiator. You're kind of in battle. And, you know, in some of these smaller clubs, you can hear better because maybe you're not relying. Back in the day, we didn't have the in-ear monitors and we started to get the in-ear monitors when we were playing maybe 3,000 to 5,000 seat venues. So those, um, you know, like the Fillmore West, the Metro in Chicago, um, nine thirty club in DC, thirty club. There, you know, there's this uh, rock and roll intimacy. Yeah. Now I'm not saying like Madison Square Garden was maybe the most thrilling gig I ever played, particularly the Friday night where just walking up that final set of stairs and getting to the top stair. And just feeling like there were, you know, jet packs under my feet, you know? Yeah. Feet jets.
0: (laughs) It's incredible. And, you know, in some ways, when you've reached Madison Square Garden, you know that there are a lot of people listening to your music. But there's something really profound about going from the wetlands to Irving Plaza, like making that leap almost more exciting because you're like, wow, people really care about our music more than, you know, a small club in
4: New York City. Well, part of, I think, every band's wish is that they're going to grow and that maybe through hard work their songs will catch on i think we felt like we we had good songs and that we we really wanted to put on the best performance possible and then one thing that maybe not every band does but i certainly think we did was talk to people afterwards and and feel like that it was a community doing those shows at college gigs and then being very accessible And then I think, and Rich, you were there for so much of this, that a college gig brought people to Boston, right? brought these people to New York, to those really special venues.
0: Whatever city you were in when you tour, you love to find a record store and a guitar shop.
4: Yeah, and maybe a funky clothing shop. I think that was really one of my favorite parts about being on the road because I would generally just get up in the morning and then just go explore and look for these kind of shops. And, you know, the independent record shop, the, the guitar shop, they really have a lot of character. Characters work there. And I think I always had a pretty close relationship with my instruments, everything from guitar pedals to to guitars and basses and amps um, sometimes to the point where I'd find a new instrument and that inspired a song
0: and I remember actually seeing that happen sometimes where you would pick up a pedal or a new Telecaster and all of a sudden you've got bullet holes
4: Blackbirds a bullet holes, They're oh, scattered kind of across oh, the sky I want us These keep building to the
1: gray
4: line My fingers collapse around my pen Like soldiers trying to hold the flag once again, give to you, my friend. Give to you, my friend.
0: Give to you, my friend. The song almost emerged from this melding of you and the instrument.
4: Yeah, I always wanted a blue Stratocaster. And there I was at, at Mike's Guitars in Cincinnati, and because there was some gig in Cincinnati, and then walking around. And Mike's Guitars was almost like walking through somebody's house and you were like up in the attic and there that blue stratocaster was and it was in 1964 and this was in 2002 and now that thing has jumped like 10 grand wow but there it was you know part of touring is about treasure hunts i guess
0: i love that i love that idea of like as you as you think back on your experience and your relationship to certain venues it's sort of informed by the treasure hunting that was part of that whole experience
4: I stick loneliness your lips and the two coins of your eyes in my pockets yeah
0: As a musician, you've talked a little bit about some of your favorite venues. As an audience member, what are some highlights of venues that you've experienced some incredible
4: music? Well, I saw Peter Gabriel at the Greek Theater, and I also performed at the Greek Theater. So he's one of my favorite artists.
0: In Berkeley, California.
4: Yeah, that was really cool. And then in 1997, just when I was getting to know Ben Harper, I saw him in a tiny club in Stockholm, and that show really like blew my mind because here he was a guy that I really, one of my favorite musicians, and I'm just four people back.
3: You look like gold to me, and I'm not too blind to see. You look like gold. Said you look like gold. You make me want to
0: sing. Well, Pete, thank you for doing this a second time. You're, I'm I looking mean,
4: for the third time, should be next week, maybe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Love you, buddy. Okay, big hugs. Love you, man. Talk to Talk you later. Like the
3: rays down from the sun. When a new day's just begun, you look like a home.
0: I love that Pete's memory of venues is tied to his experience of the cities and towns, finding a great record shop or a great guitar shop. That little nugget captures Pete's personality really well.
1: Slips don't move, but
4: still he speaks. His dark green eyes stare at me.
0: Okay. So, you may have noticed that Clint has not joined me for the re-record. He headed to California to catch Russ Lawton playing with the Train Band in San Diego, and then to Las Vegas to join Mahali from the band Twiddle at a music festival. I want to share conversations with two more people. First, our old buddy, Jeff Simons. Here's what Jeff had to say. How you doing? How are ya? I'm good. So today's question is, what is the best music venue? I'm interested to hear both from your perspective as a musician and places that you've played, but also as someone who's seen a ton of live music.
5: Yeah, super true. Let's start
0: with as a musician. What is a highlight venue for you that you've played?
5: Well, one of the places I played is also one of the places I would choose as the ultimate room. Um, I got to play the Fillmore in San Francisco, and I think the Fillmore is the best room I've ever seen music in. It's the perfect size. It's like it holds 1,100. It's a grand old ballroom. The acoustics are fantastic. Um, and uh, I've seen some really amazing shows there. I saw Pete Townsend solo there. I saw Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers play four of their residency in 97 shows there i saw mud crutch there twice i mean i don't know, maybe 70 80 bands i've seen at the film where i've lost count i saw wilco there a bunch of times and every time you play there people are like soaking it in like you can see the, you know the musicians get on stage and you can see the, the chandeliers and all of the the posters on the wall of all this history
0: going back forever that it's not just the sound in the room it's the history seeping off the walls.
5: Yeah, I mean, you were there with Dispatch. I mean, like, yeah. it, you just you just feel it. You know, yeah. it's just. Uh, I think musicians come to that tour spot with reverence, and I yeah. think audiences know. Audiences come to the Fillmore know they might see a band really at their best, and so they come ready for a great show. Like, I just feel like there's a mutual respect for the building that players and and audience have, and then we also have the Greek Theater in Berkeley, which is just a spectacular open air stone amphitheater with amazing acoustics. And you'll get a band that should be playing 20,000 seaters, play that place instead. I saw Radiohead there twice. Uh, but yeah, I saw Tom Petty there a bunch of times. Like the bands would sometimes choose the Greek and sacrifice the extra 10,000 seats they could sell at Oakland Arena just to play this like majestic outdoor space.
4: You yeah, we sing one all together? You wanna sing one all together?
1: Loves your Loves Jesus. In
5: too. the best music audience i've ever been in every year is the audience at bonnaroo hmm. in tennessee like of, of all the music festivals i feel like people go to bonnaroo to listen the afternoon tent shows where there's like fifteen to twenty five thousand people. That audience is just so glued in to the artist. I'm I'm so impressed by it every year. But it's the only time I've ever been in like a big audience where I felt like I had a an intimate connection with the performer.
0: Well, thank you for joining another I can't believe it's been so long since we've had you on because you are definitely the fan favorite part of this show. <laughs> Season three of 50 Years of Music with 50 year white guys has just started. Season one was the best song per year for last 50 years. Season two was an album. Yep. And then season three now you're doing places, like cities. Yeah, very good. It's a travelogue. We're doing uh, sometimes cities, sometimes countries. People should listen to this podcast. I'm a frequent listener to it. And uh, it's great to talk to you. Thank you, man.
5: Yeah, thanks, man. Great. Talk talk to you soon. Talk to you soon, buddy. Bye.
0: I also had a chance to talk to one of my bandmates, Greg Naughton, who shares his story of playing in one of the most legendary venues of all time, the White House. Hello. Greg, it's Rich. It's your buddy Rich. You know, your bandmate from the (laughs) Sweet Rings. I remember you. How are you, buddy? By the way, you're on the age-old question.
1: One of my favorite podcasts.
0: Today's question, we're talking about the greatest music venues. There's one venue in particular that I just have always loved imagining you doing this. But I also want to talk first about the fact that you and I had the opportunity to play Carnegie Hall.
1: Oh, yeah. That's got to be in any conversation about one of the best uh, venues of all time, huh?
0: So let me set the scene here. Your incredible wife... Kelly O'Hara was headlining a sold out performance at Carnegie Hall and she very kindly insisted on having the Sweet <laughs> Remains join her for that show and I remember standing in the wings and seeing pictures of the Beatles and Ray Charles and Leonard right. Bernstein and you know all these legends that have graced that stage before us we played a song of ours and then we had the opportunity to sing an a cappella song Unmiked at the front of the stage and just the sound coming back. That was
1: amazing, wasn't it?
0: Tell us about that, your experience of playing that night at Carnegie Hall.
1: I will say that when you talk about great venues and why a venue has uh, that kind of reputation that Carnegie Hall has, when we walked down and did that a cappella song in front of the audience and we're on the lip of the stage... And the audience is completely silent. You could hear a pin drop. The acoustics in that room, if you recall this, uh, are so good. The sound came back at us much richer than when we left our mouths, probably. And I remember getting goosebumps just from the feeling of that. And, you know, of course, it's also the history of it and being in that room with all those um, ghosts and, uh, and that sort of thing. Contrast
0: that to when we had the opportunity to sing the national anthem in Texas for the okay. Texas Rangers, standing uh, behind the mound, mm-hmm. 30,000 people or something like that, trying not to hear the bounce back of the right. PA system because there was a second delay or maybe a one and a half second delay on our right. voices.
1: I don't even remember that that much. Uh, but, you know, Kelly just sang the national anthem for the Yankees a couple of weeks ago and she does it fairly regularly. They do it at home plate there. And I'm often standing behind when, when, you know, when we did it, and you get up there and you do that, it's sort of an out of body experience. So I don't yeah. really remember that much about it, but when you're <clears throat> sitting there trying to analyze what it's like for Kelly, you know, to, to be singing it and, it's always something that makes her a little nervous because there is that like it, it's almost a full second or two delay from the moment you sing to what you hear back, and so to try to sing against that, keep keep plowing forward with you know your melody is is really tough. Please welcome, Tony Award winner Kelly O'Hara.
4: Oh,
1: say, can you see? Boy don't light what's so proudly we hailed at the twilight last gleaming whose broad stripes and bright stars um, what does she do uh, does she have a technique does she wear earplugs no she doesn't although i guess that's become a thing now a lot of the people who do it do that um they come with their own system for that she's never done that because you know being a um a theater singer and a and a a, you know she could do a show in at the met opera uh, next month you don't have that sort of technology with you usually
0: okay you had the opportunity to perform a very special place I think you know what I'm talking about. The East Room (laughs) of the White House.
1: Wait, sorry. Dad? I said I'm in the middle of a podcast recording. I I didn't mean to have my phone on. Can I call you right back? Okay, sorry.
0: It's good timing, actually, because your dad was with you. (laughs) That's true. Okay. So you had the opportunity to play in the East Room of the White House. And I'm interested to know what it was like, first of all, to be in the White House. Very few people get an opportunity to go in the White House. Right. And then what is it like to play for the president, for the first lady, for all the dignitaries that are in this room? It must be a very different sort of audience than you're used to playing for.
1: Well, I should say this was a long time ago, 1998, the last couple of years of Bill Clinton's presidency. And it was part of a PBS series called, uh, what is it called? Performances in the East Room type of thing. This one was about musical theater essentially and my father was the host of it and the people who were producing it um, knew that he and I often would sing together and thought it would be a fun addition to the show so they called me over to one day just I was in in the city and they said you know he said can you come over here and they want to hear us sing this song and see if it would work for the show I think it was the next week or something that we had to go down there and do it And we spent a couple of days in the White House uh, because it was a a lot of technical camera movements, that sort of thing throughout the show that had to be choreographed. So I had a lot of time just kicking around, wandering through the halls at that point, just of the lower level, which is where all the public tours happen. The show itself, um, I actually don't know what the history of the East Room is, if it was founded specifically just for performances I guess it was for for
0: entertaining. It's sort of a ballroom, right?
1: Every time I've ever been in there, I've been in there several other times for Kennedy Center honors and such. They have the stage in there as well. But so they had the stage, and this was all being filmed for PBS. And uh, I only had to sing one song. We were doing a Righteous Brothers song, my dad and I were. But as you know well, I like to sit backstage until it's my time to go on and, you know, just kind of warm up warm up, stay out of my head, just think of other things. But I have never been so nervous as that because they put me in the audience um, sitting right behind the president and the first lady. And I got, like I, I can't remember who was next to me, generals and uh, cabinet members and various people. It was Colin Powell sitting in front of me too. But it was just, it was an intimidating environment to sit and wait for your moment. Yeah, And the way it was choreographed is, at the very end of the show, like the last number of the show was going to be this, somebody was going to come and hand me a microphone. So, you know, through the whole show, I'm watching the, um, and it was like Patty Lapone and my dad and uh, Jennifer Holliday and- Some Broadway uh, luminaries. Oh yeah. And, and, and Brian Stokes Mitchell. And they're all nervous and we're all, you know, it's an intimate room. So you're right up on them and there's, all these giant movements of the the cameramen are up on stage, getting in their face, and they have these big uh, boom cameras that are moving around. So it's kind of nerve wracking. I think that I was just shaking like a leaf by the time you know, and keep looking over my shoulder to see when they were going to hand me. That was when somebody was there with the microphone. Uh, I was very nervous.
4: And so tonight, my son's going to sing a song for me just to
3: prove that that's true. Craig, you here? Come on. In the
2: White House. That's right, son. Okay. They gave you your own microphone, huh? They did, yeah.
4: Okay, great. All set. we go. I never had much going, but at least I had
1: you. How can you walk
4: out knowing? I ain't got nothing left, just, just you, done You're my soul.
1: But that said, it was a very fun, once-in-a-lifetime experience. And President Clinton got up. He was so uh, tickled by it, I guess, he got up afterwards and and immediately was like, you guys, oh my God, it's it's the Righteous Brothers.
0: You're more righteous than the Righteous Brothers. (laughs)
1: That's right. Is this great or what? Well, it's been said that it's easier to
2: understand a nation by listening to its music than by learning its language. Tonight, we heard the energy, the excitement, the very soul of America. I want to thank all of our wonderful performers, James Naughton, and all the great musicians and arrangers who accompanied them. This was a very special night that have given us a
3: great gift.
1: Thank you all and good night. As we left that evening, so the, um, some of the Secret Service stopped me as I'm trying to exit the building. And said, uh, the president uh, has asked if you if you would go up and join them for uh, you know some dessert or something in the solarium. It's like, ah, uh okay. <laughs> so um they took us upstairs and the solarium, you know, it's like on the on the is on the back, it's the third floor. So we had sat in there, and it's just my dad, my mom, Bill and Hillary, and me and, and my then girlfriend sitting there, uh, you know, eating tea and cake or whatever and he's drinking diet cokes like going crazy that's that's uh president clinton's drink of choice at least at that point and every couple minutes taking these phone calls on like you know the hotline over in the corner and whispering <laughs> about stuff um we of course learned in the days right after that that his whole investigation of the monica Lewinsky deal was expanding and he would be formally impeached um about a week or two later this is news channel 4 at 11. the house
2: will go ahead with an impeachment inquiry into president clinton's conduct
1: he had a lot a lot on his plate that night but even after all that we're, we're starting to leave um it's now one o'clock in the morning and say, so, Oh, we should, we should go to bed. This is, I think Hillary's going, it's time to go to bed. Senator. He goes, yeah, yeah, we should go to bed. All right. So he's walking out and he's pointing out all these things and he's like, Oh, this is when I played the saxophone on the, uh, on Arsenio or, or on all these pictures and stuff. Somewhere as we're getting out the door, he said, Oh, Greg hasn't seen the the, the second floor. Uh, and my dad said, no, he, has, he didn't get a chance to see that. He said, Oh, let me show you. <laughs> And I was like, oh, you don't have to do that right now. It's, it's one o'clock in the morning. Come on, I'll, I'll show you. And at which point, Hilderoy was like, well, I'm going to bed. <laughs> she, she, she left. And for the next hour, we got a personal tour from the President of the United States of, and he's a huge history buff. So he knows what every article in that place is. You know, we walked through the Lincoln's old office and he pulled... You know, point out every single thing, tell us the whole history of it. This is where Lincoln sat and wrote the Emancipation Proclamation. Come on, we'll go in here and we'll look. This is a copy of the Gettysburg
2: Address in Lincoln's own hand. And this was the fifth and last copy that he actually wrote out in his own hand. And he did it to try to help people raise money to help widows and orphans from the Civil War.
0: Amazing stuff. Amazing. And I wanted to hear the story in part because the venue itself is obviously so grand and and the pressure that you felt, but also the fact that you had this private tour uh, of this historical landmark is just incredible. And
1: what a night that was for you. Yeah. Big digression from um, your topic probably, but uh, it was a pretty, pretty amazing experience. Definitely one for the for the old uh, memoirs, if I should ever write some.
0: Well, you've been a frequent contributor to this podcast and we always enjoyed a chance to talk to you.
1: Likewise, amigo, talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.
0: Okay, I think we're just scratching the surface about this conversation. We're gonna come back with more on the greatest music venues in a future episode. We hope you had fun, as much fun as we did. And we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age-old question. Follow us on Instagram at the age-old question. Facebook, the age-old question. We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind, people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. Also, if you're digging the podcast, please check
3: out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash the age old question and consider becoming a part of our age old question family. With your support, we'll be able to answer many more age old questions. Thanks.